Hello and welcome to Teaching English with the British Council Series 2. A podcast in which we try and provide solutions to some of the key questions being asked by English teachers around the world. Teaching English with the British Council. We are your hosts, we am Hamdan and Chris Salton. In each episode, we address one such question and attempt to answer it in two ways. Teaching English with the British Council. In the first part of each episode, we hear from a British Council project, programme or publication about something which is being done to address this issue. Across the 10 episodes of Series 2, we'll hear from teachers, trainers and researchers in a wide range of contexts, including Ukraine, Romania, Egypt and the United Kingdom. Teaching English with the British Council. In the second part, a leading English expert and practitioner will provide practical solutions which you can immediately try out wherever you work. Each episode of Teaching English is accompanied by a full transcript and show notes. These show notes provide additional information, a glossary of keywords, and links to relevant websites. Teaching English with the British Council This is episode 9. How can the ELT sector become fairer for all teachers? Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Teaching English with the British Council, in which we look at how the ELT sector can become fairer for all teachers. Wayne, what do you understand by this word fairness? The concept of teaching everyone equally and fairly, not being biased and not to stigmatize against people because of their background, maybe their experience it could be because of their gender so how do we become more equitable and equal in our delivery of teaching and do you think the elt sector is fair at the moment i think there's a lot of discrimination maybe it's unconscious bias sometimes and sometimes you see it in students but they don't notice it i've seen a lot of students coming to the administration and asking for a native English teacher to teach them. But after a while, when a non-native teacher teaches them, they come to the realization that it's not about the teacher being native or not non-native. It's more about the skills of the teacher. Other sort of bias could be maybe more conservative. Students would want a male teacher, not a female. So these sort of imbalances in ELT can occur. Do you have any personal experience with this way as a as a woman and as a, a non-native speaker of English? At the beginning maybe students would question it oh she's non-native or yeah but once they're in the lesson they realize that well this is as beneficial as if someone who's native is teaching us. Perhaps maybe being young when I started teaching I was very young and I taught adults sometimes older students much older than me so the first impression is that well she's young how would she be able to teach me especially if I had an older student I had to establish this relationship and how did you try and overcome those biases that people saw a lot of the times it's just about 
proving the opposite. So if it's an older student questioning a younger female teacher, I would establish from the very beginning that I'm a professional teacher, so I would just deal with them very professionally. And I'd keep my passion for my profession, and I think that works. And I think that's brilliant, and I'm sure you were excellent at being able to prove that. But I think what we want to look at in this episode is how structures of ELT and how there can be reforms built into this system so future teachers such as yourself don't have those issues or they're they're less likely to be uh, around. Yeah, I remember I had one student. He was much older than me. So when he first saw me, he questioned, will she be able to teach me? But the program was designed into two courses. The second part of it, he was supposed to have another teacher, a native teacher, but he actually asked for me again to teach him because he felt that we grew a connection. He is able to learn from me and that that is great. Yeah. In our field report, we'll be hearing from three different people working in different areas of ELT in terms of trying to make it fair from the perspective of workers' rights, gender and inclusion. Teaching English with the British Council. I'm Simon Francis. I'm currently the political officer on the steering committee of the Temple Workers Union. We've had in recent years a growth of unions. We believe in militant direct action unionism. We will cooperate with other unions, but we're prepared to act independently of the more traditional TUC affiliated unions. This has meant, for example, winning compensation for an online teacher recently who was dismissed abruptly, without due process, and with no reason given. Unions have resources such as legal expertise, and the strength of the union is probably needed if workers' representation is to become a permanent feature in reality of language schools. I just find the TUC-affiliated unions, I think you can join both, for example, but I would prioritise myself something like the Temple Workers' Union. A workforce should look at everything. But a first step, it should be to try and just establish regular meetings, teachers' meetings, teachers' and staff meetings, and the election of representatives. I've operated in places that have been ununionized before. It's been perceived that management, uh, the organization, has been behaving unfairly. It's needed a quick response. It's, there's not been enough time to unionize. So, yeah, things like just direct letters to management. You can use petitions and so on. We've had cases of people turning up in staff rooms wearing the same colour as a kind of symbolic expression of the strength of feeling over an issue. That's, you know, rattles the cage of management and you're not contravening any kind of local restrictions. Of course, in the age of the internet, there are things like Twitter storms. How much you can do in a country will depend on, on the country and its legislation. So I understand that some of these will be more difficult to act on in some places. But yeah, there are plenty of strategies and mechanisms on offer that you could try out short of actually trying to establish a union and formal recognition. Anyone anywhere in the world can contact us if they're a member or not, whatever their particular circumstances, and we can arrange a Zoom meeting to explore options concerning what to do about any issue that they have. I started working as a teacher of English to speakers of other languages 
in the late 1970s. And since then, this happy job has enabled me to travel, to work as a teacher, teacher trainer, editor, writer, publisher, and president of IATEFL. And this background has enabled me to set up the Fairlist UK. The Fairlist UK is an award for organisers of ELT events that are based in the UK and who put on an event with plenty of women speaking at plenary, keynote and or panellist level. And I set it up basically because I was tired of being the only woman on the main stage at events. So many students and teachers, directors of studies and so on, are girls and women that it seems ridiculous if we are not fully represented at the leading edge of events. In April 2013, at the first awards ceremony, only five events based in the UK had achieved any kind of gender balance of speakers at the top level. But over the years, the numbers grew. We also set up a website and wrote articles about the Fairless UK. The recent pandemic they meant that we were kind of on hold, paused for a while. But now that ELT events based in the UK are picking up again, we're back in business. If you go to the website www.thefairlist.org, you'll find lots of ideas for you when you either organise an ELT event yourself, or are thinking of presenting at an event, or participating in an event. Let's say that you hear about an upcoming event and you're interested in there being plenty of women as keynote or plenary or panellist speakers. Well, there's lots you can do. Have a look at the upcoming event programme and if there are very few women presenters named on it, get in touch with the organisers and, and say that you're interested in attending and encourage them to do something about the speaker gender balance. And you can give them the address of our website, of course. And when you check the programme, if you find that the few women on it are all programmed at the same time as each other, in parallel slots, then ask the organisers if instead they can sprinkle the women about so that at most times of the day there is a chance of attending a woman's talk. If you get there and discover there is only one woman on, for example, a speaker panel, you can ask the organisers if they can provide a woman chair at least, or suggest that some women participants be invited to give their views, kind of like consumers, on the questions to put to the panel. And most importantly, if you're asked for feedback at the end of or after the event, comment on the gender balance of speakers, fair or unfair. Also, do get in touch with the fair list and become a friend or a supporter. And get in touch with me and let me have any ideas and suggestions that you come up with, because it's always good to have participation. It would be really nice to think that pretty soon, a good gender balance at UK ELT events was so normal that our fair list wasn't needed anymore. But the history of all kinds of civil rights movements shows us that progress can slip back into regress very, very quickly if pressure is not maintained. So I think probably I need to keep the Fairless UK going. And once we're truly back to a kind of post-pandemic normal, I'll involve colleagues in a discussion 
just like I did 10 years ago when I started the award, and chew over with them a few ideas as to where to go next. Hi, I'm Giovanni Ricata, and I'm joint coordinator of the Ipponson IHFL Special Interest Group along with Rachel Harris. Teachers and language educators face many challenges when it comes to special educational needs and inclusive practices. But to me, one of the greatest challenges that educators face is having to deal with the term inclusion or inclusive practices because these have been under the spotlight for the last couple of decades, but they're often associated with labels and tokenisms, which have very little to do with uh, actual inclusion and inclusive practices. This is really what educators and language teachers have to face, you know, having to unravel this mystery of what inclusion actually entails. The Inclusive Practices and SEND group is a special interest group which promotes genuinely inclusive practices and it hopes to lead to a sense of belonging and full participation for all within the ELT community. So we cover a wide range of human characteristics and identities and we try to acknowledge how identities overlap uh, in many individuals. But the best thing to do if you don't know where to start is to get in touch with the Ibn Special Interest Group at Ayatafel because we will help you, we will guide you through different approaches to inclusive practices and we will try and put you in touch with the right person, someone who will address your immediate needs. Perhaps this is one of the most important things that we should ask. How can we make ELT a more fair place? And as uh, we heard, one of them is unions. Another way is achieving gender balance and also being more inclusive. So it's a multifaceted approach. I need to pick on the inclusion one. I think there's a misconception sometimes of what inclusion can be. For example, in my context, a lot of teachers thought that inclusion means that we need to include people with disability. It shouldn't just include people with disability. It could also be about gender. It could also be about taking into consideration, you know, the different backgrounds of people. People can be excluded in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes this can be deliberate, but sometimes it may be accidental or just that people aren't thinking. But also the importance of intersectionality as well, that you know, if you are a woman, if you do, for example, have a, a disability, if you are from a, a group that's not in a teaching union, then you can be sort of triply stigmatized and marginalized in that situation which makes performing extremely difficult so whilst each of these issues are really important in their own way when people have more than one of these issues that they're facing it can become a, a real burden yeah and i think representation matters in the classroom when learners see that the teacher represent them or there's a representation from you know a wider scope, then they are more likely to be inclusive in their daily practice. So you're sort of teaching them how to be inclusive, but not directly. And as teachers, I think we should reflect on these practices in our daily behavior. 
And today we're interviewing Rachel Zatieri to learn more about inclusivity in ELT. Welcome, Rachel. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me. My first question is, to what extent are non-native speaking English teachers discriminated against when applying for jobs? I know that an English teacher from France recently launched a survey and 80% of the respondents were actually English teachers who have already been rejected by language schools at least once. Teachers approach me all the time on social media, especially LinkedIn, sharing stories of discrimination, despite their qualifications that include MAs and even PhDs. And what do you put this down to, Rachel? Where does this discrimination come in? Is it inbuilt into the ELT sector, do you think? A lot of people argue that this is, you know, the company should have the right to employ who they want. It can also be because people are not informed. A lot of students, if they, if this is something that they demand or they expect, uh, they're not aware that this is illegal, that this is discrimination. Or maybe they never had a non-so-called non-native speaker teacher uh, and don't know that there can also be great examples of teachers. So it's it could be a matter of awareness, you know. What will ultimately make someone a good teacher would be their qualifications, would be their experience, would be their passion. Perhaps you could share a little bit of your own personal experience of this, Rachel, of of the discrimination that you've encountered when applying for uh, for teaching jobs. Absolutely. Uh, It was November 2021. I applied for work at Inlingua Karlsruhe. I sent my CV and they replied that although my CV was interesting and they were in fact looking for teachers, many of them, as they said, they were not allowed to hire me. That was their answer because I'm Greek. They told me I can teach Greek, but not English. So when I replied that this is discrimination, that this is illegal, they said it's company policy and they didn't wish to discuss it further. That that was it. So I went after them with my lawyer. He sent them a demand letter telling them that we'd be suing them for damages. And a few weeks later in a court hearing, the, um, the judge advised them to give up and pay because if we went to court, they'd lose. So, and I actually, I was really frustrated back then. I wasn't sure I'd be staying in Germany. I didn't want to, you know, take this further. So I thought, yes, we're going to accept. And to the best of my knowledge, it was the first time that a language school ever paid for this discrimination. What I think was so great about that is that you were willing to go that that extra mile. You and your lawyer were willing to do that. And it, it seems to me that we hear all sorts of stories from all over the world, certainly on social media sites and it it seems to be that it hasn't budged and as you say employers are hiding behind their right to choose who they want to and so on how do you think we go beyond the the legal side of things to making that step change in that schools see the advantage of employing anyone based on their merits let's tell students right let's let's ask students to think about the following If you agree with that, uh, you agree that you will never be good enough to become an English teacher yourself. Uh, Are you okay with this? Do you think this is fair? Are you aware that there are qualified teachers who are being rejected because of their origin? As we said, even if they have committed their time, they've invested time and money on teacher training courses. Do you feel comfortable being part of this uh, cycle of discrimination? What kind of mindset are we promoting in general? Fixed growth? Uh, it doesn't matter where we're born or what we're born or what we will ultimately grow to be. What is the value of education? I mean, 
So what is the value of education, I think, is, is, is a very important question. Uh, why are we studying to become an expert if it will never mean that we are good enough? We're never going to be desirable candidates when we apply for a job. It's about everyone's, everyone's right to be appreciated for and valued for their skill. I think one of the frustrating things that we even have to have these labels, you know, native, non-native speaker teachers, we should just have English language teachers. And as you say, you know, people should be able to be appointed based on their their skills, their attitude and all of those other skills that we value in teachers. And the, the, the very fact that we have to use these abbreviations, these descriptions is unfortunate. I also think it's not, but if we absolutely must, we can use more inclusive terms, L1, L2, proficient speaker. Our colleagues can also, within the ELT community, could avoid advertising themselves as native speaker teachers, because this automatically divides the community. What can we say to learners who say that they want a native speaker to teach them? And what about parents? And I often also experience that in the workplace where students or parents come and they want a native speaker teacher? I have been there. And uh, some of the things that I discussed are the fact that, first of all, if they agree with this policy, it means that they agree their children uh, or students themselves will never be good enough to become an English teacher and ask them if they're okay with this limitation. And also, if they are aware that it's illegal, let's say it's, it is discrimination, it is illegal, like all other kinds of discrimination. Uh, are they supporting it? Sometimes we're not aware and that excuses us. But when we become aware, what are we doing to actually fight it? And again, as we said, giving examples of a lot of proficient speakers who excel, who are, it doesn't mean that because they will be native speakers or non-native speakers, they will be good or bad teachers. Of course, if your child is studying uh, English to move to a place to work, to study, and it is, they need to learn the local dialect, they need help, you know, with uh, some colloquial language or phonological features of the specific area. Uh, sure, they would need a teacher who can support them with that, no doubt. But this is not always the case. And students learn English as a lingua franca to uh, interact with other international speakers all over the world. So how will it exactly benefit them, you know, to just have that teacher from, I don't know, Australia or Canada or, or the UK uh, to keep a more open mind? Sometimes it seems like stating the obvious, but maybe they haven't been told these things. I'm interested to also get your views on on whether you think the the continued dominance of prestige forms of the language like British English, American English, at the expense of other forms of English including things like international English and so on. And, and how you see that and whether, whether there's any way that those prestige forms can be challenged, whether we should be, as teachers, promoting uh, a more global form of English and, and where you sit on that issue. The response I have to most of the questions is it depends on the learner's needs. I say that a lot <laughs> uh, on teacher training courses, sessions. It always depends on the learner's needs, the context in which they're going to use the language, right? So they dictate what is to be taught, if you ask me. I teach uh, students who will use English to communicate with people from all over the world. Uh, my students, for example, struggle with listening and pronunciation. So how I help them with that, and I adopt this ELF, uh, let's say, approach, I choose or I create materials and I uh, try to expose them to a range of accents uh, to help them with listening. Uh, in my belief, listening is, is and pronunciation are closely linked. 
So uh, to help them improve their listening skills and also develop positive attitudes, right, towards different accents, I ask from international colleagues, my colleagues, teachers, teacher educators to record themselves. They could be from England or Thailand or Spain or, or you know, anywhere in the world, not necessarily uh, from a specific place. Uh, that's how I try to raise awareness of plurality of English, of accents, and I help students notice even, you know, potential differences, which might help them in uh, international interactions or communication breakdowns. But I think that also we need to teach them communication compensation strategies, which means uh, what can you do when you don't understand your co-speaker, right? How can you be more accommodating towards your audience, Communication is, is, is a, a mutual responsibility. It's not just a burden of the speaker, but also of the listener. So they, I'm also trying to help them with that, their attitudes and themselves trying to be active listeners and, and to help with any communication breakdowns. How, how will they fix it? You know, how will they be able to, under, to understand each other and communicate despite uh, some cultural features in their own use of the language? And this goes back, I think, Rachel, to what you were saying before, that the overwhelming majority of times that our students are going to be using English is with people whose first language isn't English. And therefore, they need to be prepared for these different accents, different sounds, different phonological features. But then also, as you say, how to repair those things, how to clarify understanding, how to check what has been said and all those sorts of things. So it's actually a a really responsible thing to do as a as a classroom teacher. Yes, but as I said, you know, it always depends on their needs. They might have different needs. It's just that probably most of the vast majority of students right now are learning English as a lingua franca, as it seems. And sometimes the learners do not have a very clear idea of their needs. So it's a matter of raising their awareness, I think. So what can be done, in your opinion, to make the world of English language teaching a fairer place of native and non-native speaking teachers of English? Quite a few things. And these are not all my ideas. Raising awareness in the classroom and the training room. Classroom meaning talking to our students, discussing this phenomenon of native speakerism and also on teacher training courses, discussing it with our uh, student teachers. There is an activity, uh, Marek Kichkoviak has designed an awareness raising activity. He called it, who is a native speaker, right? So this gets uh, students or student teachers to reflect on who they actually believe is a native speaker and explore and critically examine uh, native speakerism as a concept. It really helps, you know, uh, get that discussion going. And perhaps by the end of the session or lesson, their, uh, their awareness uh, will have been increased and then perhaps they will have changed uh, partly or wholly their attitude towards this. I think that um, we can include L2 speakers in course books, uh, which is okay, it's been done now more than a few decades ago, but give them more central roles. Yes, L2 speakers are introduced, but not as central characters. They are visitors. They are tourists, they are foreigners, they are outsiders in a way. So perhaps they could be given more central roles. We talked earlier also about us within the community. I'd like to think of us as a community rather than, you know, two battlefields, right? We're all teachers, we're all professionals. So we help and support each other uh, and promoting, uh, you know, good practice where we see it. So in terms of schools, managers, directors, please focus when you're reviewing CVs, uh, please focus on the candidate's qualifications, experience, as we said, 
don't focus on their nationality or passport. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your passion on this uh, on this subject. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Rachel. Well, yeah, what are your views on non-native speakers and their teaching of English and the challenges they face and what the sector can do to support them more? I think there's a lot of unconscious bias against non-native English teachers. What we can do more of is sometimes when we want to change something, especially in order to make it more inclusive, we tend to focus on changing teachers. But I think the way to do it is to change the environment around it. Let's say a building is not inclusive then how can I make this environment more inclusive? Maybe I need to make it accessible for students with disability. And maybe with non-native speakers, I need to give them a bit more confidence in their language and then in their abilities. And I think if the managers are native speakers, it is rewarding that they get some more encouragement from native speakers. So I see it as work hand in hand. Yeah, and the hope must be surely in the future that we don't even need to use these labels, that we can just have English teachers. It feels like there's progress in that direction, but there's still a, a long way to go. And I think it seems to me one of the, the real challenges that we face as an industry is the financial part of it. Still, there is demand for native English speakers as teachers. We have to change that view amongst the clients, the customers, amongst the parents who are buying those services for their children, who think the best thing I can do with my money is to buy the services of a native English-speaking teacher. So that is the role of everybody in the industry, but I think in particular owners of private language school, managers in those positions, directors of studies to have those conversations and to say, there is no difference often those non-native speakers will be better teachers and and certainly as good as um that's how we can really change the narrative in my opinion non-native english language speakers are more likely to know what are the weaknesses of arabic speaking students because they worked their way up to be professionals and proficient in that language when students see that you were in their position you were in their shoe previously but you made your way up and you learned then that motivates them to keep learning and keep that journey i always tell my students uh, my language wasn't as good years ago but with practice it becomes more natural so I like to use my experience just to give them a little bit more motivation. And also because they've had to put up with all this prejudice in their careers, they've had to work harder to get where they are. So, you know, they will often be very driven, motivated people. That's what you want. If you want the best possible teacher for your son or daughter, that's the kind of person you want. Thank you for listening and in episode 10 we will talk about what do people say is the best way to teach English. Until then, goodbye. Teaching English with the British Council Series 2 is hosted by Wiam Hamdan and Chris Souten. The producer is Elizabeth Dyer. Executive producer Chris Dyer. Salsan Abukara is the Arabic language consultant. Until now, until then.
until <laughs> until then. <laughs> we'll keep that in. Before we go, we'd like to draw your attention to our listener feedback survey. Tell us what you think of the podcast, any improvements we could make, or any topics or themes of teaching English that you would like us to include in future episodes. A link to the survey is available in the show notes and on the British Council website. Teaching English with the British Council.